Flyers Daily with Jason Martinez. All right, here we go. Flyers Daily for Friday, March 4th, as the Flyers go down against the Minnesota Wild. The Wild end a four-game losing skid by getting a win over the Flyers, a 5-4 final. And, you know, in a season where the Flyers have done a lot of losing, it was a different way to lose. And it was a very wide-open game, not a lot of structure. And the Flyers, in a way, found a way to lose. They found ways to lose games earlier this season, but maybe this was a different way that they found a way to lose a game. And you're going to hear from Mike Yo coming up in this episode at the very end in his press conference and a couple things that he said. That you're going to hear from Mike Yo at the end of this podcast episode after we get to a bunch of Twitter questions, but a couple things that he said that really stuck out to me. He said that when the team faced adversity, they crumbled. And the Minnesota Wild, and he, and he noted, the Wild didn't play a particularly great game either and made a lot of mistakes on the ice, but they never crumbled. And they found a way to stick with it, stick with each other, and get a win. I think that's really interesting. And Mike you know, really put it on the players in this press conference that they got to find their way out of this. Some guys got to take a bigger piece of this. And guys that are expected to do more need to do more. Mike Yoke um, talked about Scott Lawton's game on Tuesday, the loss against the Edmonton Oilers, that it wasn't a good game for Lawton. He was expected more. I thought Lawton came back and played a really good game. Uh, he and Travis Konechny uh, created some opportunities, got on the scoreboard. But all in all, you know, some pretty horrific turnovers that cost the Flyers in this game. The two that I hearken back to the most are the Derek Broussard one at the end of the first period, which we'll get into detail on that in a second, and then the Proveroff one in the third period on the game-tying goal. And Mike Yo was also asked about Ivan Proveroff and asked about you know his play right now, and he said that basically, and you'll hear from him again, but he basically said that he's a player that's better than what he showed tonight and that he needs to be better. And I mean, one of the things that's got to come out of the remainder of this season is to find a way to get Ivan Proveroff right. Because the turnover that he had where he throws the puck basically in his zone from down below, the, if the Flyers are moving forward, the left circle. He's a left side defenseman, and he throws a long cross-ice pass all the way up to a, one of his Flyers players, which is around the red line on the right side of the ice. But there's a Minnesota Wild player right there. A, and B, that's an easy play to read. If you make that pass, you give the other team so much notice that the pass is coming because it's such a long pass that they can jump that. And when they jump it, they're going the other way with momentum and you're on your heels. So that turnover happens in the third period at 12-16 and it gets Minnesota into the zone. Great setup and they end up scoring a goal and that ties the game. And then just about 40 seconds later, uh, they get the go-ahead goal, the five, the fifth goal of the game, which turns out to be the game winner. And, you know, those things can't happen. And you don't expect a player like Ivan Provorov at this point in his career to be making that kind of mistake. He had a couple other turnovers in the game, too, that didn't result in goals for Minnesota. And then the other play is the Broussard one, flyers up 2-1, closing moments of the first period. Look, Derek Broussard's played over 900 NHL games, over 100 playoff games. He is a sage veteran in this league. Are his best days ahead of him? No. Uh, But still, this is the kind of mistake that you don't expect a guy 
like Ivan Pro or excuse me, like Derek Broussard to make. There's under five seconds left in the period. And usually in that situation, not a lot of pressure on him. You just eat that puck into the boards and just get it to the horn. But for some reason, he tries to a flip to go over everybody up the middle and just doesn't get enough on it. And Frederick Gaudreau picks off the pass, goes in, and is able to score and tie the game back up at two with three seconds left in the period. It's confounding. Um, it's stunning. And Mike Yo was also asked about those two turnovers, and he said basically, you know, it's not acceptable for any player to turn the puck over like that, not just those two guys, because these guys are all NHL players and all professional hockey players, and you shouldn't make that play. That's Those two plays were of massive consequence. It was a very, again, very loose game. I thought Cam Talbot was really mediocre in the game for Minnesota. I mean, the first goal that he gave up to Scott Lawton, I mean, he matadored him and gave him the whole left side of the net. And for what reason? I don't know. The only reason, the only way I can explain it is that he lost his positioning in his net because he covered the short side like a ton, so much so that he was probably protecting the side of the net and the end boards more than he was protecting net. And it couldn't have been because Oscar Lindblom was coming down the middle because if he was going to shade and cheat for a pass that was going across, he's going to be more towards the middle of the net, not to the short side. And you know, I talked to Scott Lawton after the first period on the radio, and he said that. He said, uh, you know, I was thinking pass the whole time, but then when I look up and I see that lane with all that net there, I, I took it. And he went in and he got the backhand goal. And I thought Talbot was really mediocre in the game uh, and, and gave the Flyers a chance. I mean, they had a lead in this game again. And they found a way to lose here to the Minnesota Wild. So, again, we'll play Mike Yo coming up at the end of this episode. But I want to get to Flyers Twitter questions first. We haven't taken questions all that often of late. So I figured it was another good opportunity to do so after a pretty frustrating loss. And I want to start actually with a guy that DM'd me. Uh, at City Kid 18 he said, hey, looking at tonight's minutes, it's easy to see who the Flyers were showcasing in front of a house full of scouts. Ristolainen had uh, the most minutes on the team, and even Giroux with 22-plus is more than normal and a lot for a forward. Now, part of the equation for Ristolainen, Giroux, that is a lot of minutes, but part of the equation for Ristolainen is that Justin Braun left the game in the second period. Um he basically came down the hall after a minute 38 second shift and lost his lunch. And we find out later that he is suffering from the flu. So he did not return to the game. Uh, so you're down a top pairing right side defenseman and your second pairing right side defenseman is Rasmus Ritzelainen. So naturally he's going to pick up some extra minutes as a result of that. But I mean, that's part of the equation. And then the other part is that no, you know, Ivan Provorov is struggling so much too. So Rasmus Ristolainen and, and Travis Sanheim were out there quite a bit in the game. They, they've been the Flyers' best D pair, those two. Um, and I don't think there's much debate about that right now. It's part of the issue. Your second D pair shouldn't be your best D pair, but that has been the case. Um, at Yarnballer Kev um, on Twitter says, I've noticed, and he said, I know you did too because you've said so the lack of net front presence at times, and Jim Jackson even called it out live. Is that a change in game plan or being out of position? Ratcliffe was doing well making himself an option there. Yeah, I, I've ta- I talk about that quite a bit. If if a guy is there to be net front, 
it's it, maybe it shouldn't be called net front. It should be called goalie front because you want to be in front of the goalie and forcing him through constant movement too in your net front screen to be trying to look around you on short side, long side, or whatever it is. And then whoever's got the puck as the shooter needs to read it. When he looks short side, you shoot long side. If he looks long side, you shoot short side. Most goalies will, by default, the first place they'll try and look around a screen is going to be short side. That's what they're taught. Because A, that's the shortest distance from where the puck is to the back of the net on the short side. And B, there's usually more traffic in the middle of the ice. Therefore, it's more difficult for pucks to get through. So uh, that's usually the default, but sometimes the goalie has to go around the, the, you know, to the long side, not the short side, to look for a screen. And you know, it's, it's a philosophical thing. Some players are there to tip pucks and redirect pucks. Some players are there just to take the goalie's eyes away and disrupt him. Uh, but it, that how it's being deployed, I thought Isaac Rackliff did a really good job of it. It's how he got his first goal. He was providing a great net front screen, and the puck hit off him and went in. Um, and uh, Yarn Brawler Kev also had a second question. He said, JVR is not at all what we expected since his return. He played well the beginning of the previous season for a stretch, um, and you interviewed him about his offseason. He isn't playing in front of the net. Is he on the roster next season? Um, well, two years, when he first got came back, that first season he came back and he signed his contract, he had 27 goals and missed a bunch of games. Remember, he got hurt in the second game of the season upon his return. And so he had 27 goals. He was basically on a 30-goal pace, which has been his number. Um, throughout his time in Toronto. He basically averaged 30 goals per 82. Uh, But, you know, last year was off to a torrid start. I mean, he had a great start to the season. It was the best start to any season he's had in his NHL career, but he cooled off obviously significantly. He was actually a healthy scratch at one point. Um, And this year, there hasn't been a lot of consistency in his game. And I don't know if the losing is affecting him. I don't know what it is. Or his game's just not where it was. But as far as him being on this roster next season, I mean, he's a player that will try and move because of the contract and $7 million on one year left on that deal. Um, But is it movable? You could eat half of it, sure, and that would make it more movable. But is it still movable at that point? Uh, Do you buy him out? So you got to figure those things out. I think if they don't move him, he certainly is a buyout candidate. But I'm not, if I'm making the decisions, I'm not adding a sweetener for a team to take him. I need draft picks. I don't want to give up a draft picks just to have a subtraction. So that's kind of the way I look at it. Uh, Eric tweeted in and said, uh, Eric says, what positives should I look for when watching this team? Is it just to hope for a good return at the deadline and pray things don't get worse? I mean, it's in the eye of the beholder. Look, I think that, yeah, you want to see, obviously, them get good returns at the deadline, but you also have to get your expectations in order for deadline and on deals and returns on expiring contracts. Uh, you're not going to get, you know, you don't you don't put out an expiring contract or uh, a middling player and get gold back. It just doesn't work like that. There's another GM on the other side that, for the most part, is not a fool. So... You got to get your you know expectations on return, kind of in order. Uh, but as far as coming down the stretch, I mean, when when they trade some of these players on expiring contracts, we're going to see some some more young guys, 
And look, I'm with everybody. I want to see more young players more consistently right now. I really do. You know, I, I get they're playing Derek Broussard because they're trying to give him some value so they can move him at the deadline. You're not going to get much for Derek Broussard anyway. But, you know, some players like obviously Morgan Frost, I'd like to see with the big club and playing in a role where he's playing with other skilled players. Isaac Ratcliffe as well. I think he'll be back up post-haste uh, and playing outside of, the, you know, north of the fourth line. I'm fine with him playing on, you know, first, second, or third line offensive minutes. Um, and we'll see other guys as well. We'll see Cam York, I'm presuming. We'll see maybe Zamula. Maybe we'll see Sushko. And we'll see others. And to me, that that's important to see those players. We, Hey, maybe we get a look at a guy like Bobby Brink, who's leading the NCAA in scoring. When his season's over, I assume I, it's, it seems pretty obvious that he's going to turn pro. Brent Flair talked about that. Uh, so maybe we get a look at a Bobby Brink, and I think those are intriguing players. Or maybe Noah Cates, Jackson Cates' brother, who played in the Olympics. Uh, so there's other guys that we can see as well. So I think there are things to look forward to, and I think it's important to see a couple things. One, uh, does Travis Sanheim finish the season playing like he's playing of late? Because he's played pretty well. I, I know he's a bit of a punching bag at times. He's played some pretty damn good hockey. Um, that's part of it, number one. Number two, can they get Ivan Provorov pointed in the right direction so he can go into the offseason feeling a lot better about things than he feels right now? That's a big question. How does Travis Konechny finish the season? Kevin Hayes is coming back. I don't know if, you know, I don't even know where I am on the Kevin Hayes thing at this point. I, is it worth it? I don't know. I really don't know. As a matter of fact, Scooby Moon tweets in and says, is there an actual point in playing Hayes on Saturday? I know, break up the scar tissue and all that, but come on. Also, why hasn't JBR been benched? He's been absolutely dreadful and a minus 27. Um, so as far as, as Hayes goes for Saturday, you know, if there's any sort of risk of re-aggravation, which could cause him to have another surgery, and if he didn't have to have a surgery now, then I'd say it doesn't make any sense. But I don't know the medicals. I really don't. And you're at that point now where I don't know if it's worth it. If he comes back and plays and starts to get his game and, and does those things and gets his game in order and gets healthier and goes into the offseason feeling better, then, yeah, it'll be worth it. But I can't answer the question that you're asking right now because I, I, I need the benefit of hindsight. Sorry to cop out on you, but that's kind of how I, how I feel about it. Uh, Joe tweets in, at Clowney on Twitter. He says, wow, I like Risto. Anything over what he's making now, which is 5.4, uh, is too much. Assuming he's traded, and aside from Petrie, who else do you think the Flyers could target as a right-hand D? I'll drop a name. He said, Connor Murphy. What's your opinion on him? Good salary, years left, and Chicago is rebuilding. Connor Murphy's an option, right-handed guy, and uh, young guy, and plays north of 20 minutes a night. So, yeah, that is an option. Um, but... If you think that Ristolainen is going to get paid what he's making now or less, um, you're delusional. Because, first of all, he's in the prime of his career. He's a UFA, and he's a right-handed defenseman. And when you look at the marketplace for right-handed defensemen in the NHL, and just not even right-handed defensemen, defensemen in the NHL and what they're getting paid, the market is set. So for Ristolainen... I would feel comfortable at a six times six. And I know some people may have pulled over and just barfed and said, you're an idiot, that you're being a company man for the team. You won't criticize them. No, that's not true. There's a tipping point that I won't go past. And if he won't sign a deal 
under that, then okay, I got to walk away and I got to move them at the deadline and recoup uh, everything I need. But here's the deal. Again, this is really important to consider. I would sign him to a six point six times 6.25. On the open market, he's getting six and a half, seven. That's what he's going to get. Um, so pending the options on the market, you have to seriously considering signing him to that deal. You have to look at the market price on NHL D-men. In particular, right shot guys. Seth Jones, he got a ton of money. Hamilton, $9 million. Darnell Nurse, left shot, 9.25 on an eight-year extension. Darnell Nurse. Now, these guys are top pairing guys, so maybe that's more in, in the ballpark of where they should be. I think those numbers are still really high for some of those players. And, you know, Ristolainen's not a top-pairing guy, but I'm not asking them to pay him $9 million. $6 million for a second-pairing right-side defenseman is market value. Now, you may like him as a player or not like him as a player. I happen to like him as a player. I know he's flawed. I know he's not a top-pairing guy. But I don't think he's the slop that a lot of people and a lot in the analytics community believe that he is. Again, I talked about him in the other episode. If the Flyers, the Flyers value analytics, they have five full-time analytics employees. If his analytics, according to their numbers, were so bad and they wanted to extend him, wouldn't that be foolish? They value analytics. So do team analytics also equal public analytics? And then the other part of the equation is he brings something as a player that they need more of, not less of, physicality. This team needs more physicality, not less physicality. So if you trade him and don't sign him, you're going to be looking for a player as a second-pair D-man that you're going to have to pay pretty much what you're paying him. Or you're going to go after a guy like Jeff Petrie, who's 34. And you're going to be looking to add physicality. Because you need it. And they need more of it. So that's part of the equation as well. So uh, as far as him getting paid $5.4 million next year, like Joe had said, that I wouldn't pay him more than he's making now, he ain't signing for that. He's not signing for that here. And he ain't signing for that on the open market. He's getting more. Zach Steffel tweets in and says, is Sanheim Ristolainen the new top D pairing? What will it take for Provorov to regain his composure? That's a great question. You know, we talked about this on the postgame show, Zach. Um, Provorov looks like a player that could use a night up in the press box. Now, he's a guy that, since he started his NHL career, has only missed two games, and they were because he was asymptomatic and in COVID protocol. And you also have to look at who comes into the lineup if he goes out. And you just don't have a lot of depth right now. So this is probably very unlikely. And because with a player like Provorov, who has been a warrior and played through quite a bit to, to play all the games he's played since he debuted in the NHL, maybe it will be counterproductive. But he looks like a player that could just use a breather and a reset. Because to me, this isn't physical. He doesn't seem to be injured or nursing anything. It, I think it's mental and confidence. And he doesn't have that right now. Ryan Schiffler says, do you see them trying to move Konechny? Him and Giroux can bring back some younger talent that can help replenish the farm. Well, I think they're two totally different pieces. Giroux's obviously an expiring contract at 34 years old. 
and will will bring you a nice return as kind of the the pearl, if you will, of the uh, of the market with the players on expiring contracts is rentals. Konechny is a totally different ballgame. Under contract, feasible contract, and that's more of a hockey trade, and I think that's more likely to be something that would be done in the offseason. Shane Rowan tweets and he says, uh, love the work, Mr. Mertitis. You don't have to call me Mr. You can call me Jason. He said with the pre and post game and Flyers Daily, and he said, I was just curious about wrist aligning being in front of Hart for another goal against. Is there anything he can do differently in those situations? Because it didn't seem like he was tying anyone up. Yeah, that was just a case. That's the what turned out to be the game-winning goal, which was actually a double screen. The initial screen came from a Minnesota Wild player who managed to leap into the air, and the puck went under him, which was an incredible play. And then Ristolainen kind of cut across Hart's vision as well. You know, Ristolainen's trying to put himself in the lane of the shot, and sometimes when doing that, you also take your goaltender's eyes away. It's not a right play. It's not a wrong play. Uh, it's one of those plays that just happens. You know, at the NHL level, they love to get guys in lanes and block shots. At some other levels, the goalie goes, dude, just let me see it. If I see it, I'm going to stop it from that distance. So just get out of the way. Don't touch it. Don't try and knock it down. Don't hit it with your glove. Don't try and knock it down with your stick. Just let me take the shot. So it's not, he didn't play it right or wrong. It was just, you know, a situation where it ended up being a double screen and Hart never saw it. Um, 207 Steel says, has anyone done the math to realize that if they do sign Ristolainen into a six-year contract, by the end of the contract, he'll still be younger than Jeff Petrie is now. If you have to overpay, do it for a 27-year-old. Again, I don't think $6 million is an overpayment when you consider the player and when you consider the market value of NHL defensemen. Drew Moff tweets in and says, do you expect after the trade deadline the team calls up uh, slash keeps their keeps up their top prospects, Frost, York, et cetera? When do we start criticizing draft development aspect of the organization? You know, this is an interesting thing that I talked about actually with Russ Cohen on my Stick to Hockey Live show. Um, first of all, when Fr- Frost and York, yes, I do expect that, and Ratcliffe. Um, other players like Sushko or maybe Zamula, I don't expect them to be called up and just kept up here. But – Um, start criticizing draft development aspect of the organization. You know, when you look back and you look back, let's look back to a player like Travis Konechny, who was drafted and then finished out his junior career and then came up eventually to the NHL and was on a really good arc. You know, his development was good all the way through, really until the NHL got paused. He was on a constant arc moving forward. So was Sanheim, so was Provorov. You know, you have to separate draft and development, or development rather, from to the NHL, and then once you get to the NHL, because I think they're different, and there's different elements to that. So they were doing a good job putting players that they drafted on a good path to the NHL, but when they got to the NHL, and some of them, after having some success at the NHL, have had, dare I say, alarming uh, stretches of of concerning play. Maybe that's the way to put it. Uh, Logan G says, does Giroux play his thousandth game before he he is traded? Does the potential weight give Chuck less leverage in a trade? No, I don't think it affects it at all. Because, first of all, his 
thousandth game would be coming up on March seventeenth, St. Patty's Day, and uh, it lets more teams get involved. Teams that are tight against the cap, because the later you trade them, the more prorated the salary is. All right, let's take one more. OBX Hound tweeted in and said, "Why should we have faith that Chuck Fletcher can fix this? His track record is mediocre at best." Um. I think some of the picks that he's made in the draft, from Emil Andre to Tyson Forster to Zade Wisdom, I think he's made some good picks. Um, you don't know that fully until, you know, in the NHL, you're looking anywhere between three and five years for most draft picks. Look at Minnesota. Look at some of the players there, Jared Spurgeon. Look at players like Kirill uh, Kaprizov, who he drafted actually in the fifth round back in 2015. Um, you know, Minnesota's having some success. Bill Guerin's getting a lot of credit for it. A lot of that, a lot of that organization has Chuck Fletcher's fingerprints all over it. Bill Guerin's made some nice moves, no doubt. Do they have the goaltending in Cam Talbot? I don't know. But you look at a team like Minnesota. Has Chuck Fletcher have this glorious track record of winning cups and all that? No. Um, and if you want to have faith that he can or can't, then that's up to you. I think he's a really smart guy. He's a good hockey man. Um, and I think that he's put of, you know, aside his ego to put a lot of resources, uh, with, like the five-person analytics team, and other areas to try and Danny Briere and as an addition and others um, to try and, and get this right. It hasn't been easy the last couple of years for teams to reset their rosters because of COVID and a flat cap. But it's it's time to make some really bold decisions. And where they maybe made some big changes this past offseason, you know, trading Nolan Patrick, trading Phil Myers, trading Robert Hay, getting Ristolainen, getting Ryan Ellis, acquiring Cam Atkinson for Jake Vorchek, all that was pretty bold. Um, you didn't part with a Sanheim Konechny or a Provorov. So this will be an interesting offseason. And they have some cap space to play with. He's used the word high-end talent that they need to get it. And I imagine that you don't mention that unless you're really going to go after it. So we'll see. He's got some proving to do to a lot of fans, no doubt about it, OBX Hound. Um, but to, you know, some people want to want to blame him for a lot that didn't have anything to do with him. Has he been perfect here? No. But I think he gets the blame from a previous regime. And it's like when you leave a place, too, you don't get credit after you leave a lot of times. Like Ed Wade was a guy that was highly criticized as the general manager of the Phillies. And Pat Gillick came in with Ruben Amaro, and the Phillies, you know, went on this run. They won a World Series in 08. They went back to another one in 09. They had some really good teams. And if you look back at the core of that team, it was Ed Wade who drafted and developed that core of Ryan Howard and Chase Utley and Jimmy Rollins and Cole Hamels. You know, that that was the core of that team. And that's Ed Wade's handiwork. So sometimes you don't get credit because you're gone when things finally do play out. Everybody, thanks for listening. Enjoy your Friday. We'll talk to you tomorrow on a brand new Flyers Day. I know she said it's all right But you can make it up next time I know she knows it's not right 